Hello and welcome to another episode of the Trading Desk Podcast. My name is Joshua Thanos. I'm your host as always. And today I have a special guest from the other side of the planet. He's uh, joining me. He is a uh, he's well known in the tech uh, YouTube area of the world. And uh, now he's uh, part of the Watchbox team. And that's Frankie Herrera. Hey, Frankie, how are you? Uh, Josh, good to be here, man. It's, it's exciting. I've been a big fan of this podcast for a long time. So just uh, really, really, uh, it's an honor to be here with you today. Oh, sweet, man. Well, I appreciate you making the time. Um, you're, if anybody doesn't know, you're you're working out of our Hong Kong office, which was actually our first international office. I think it opened in 2017, if I'm not uh, mistaken. And uh, and that's kind of and that's our flagship international office. I know we've We've gone through some iterations, and uh, we have a really awesome staff there. I'm glad that, that you've decided to come on board with us. Um, but yeah, so it's literally uh, it's 10 a.m. here in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and 10 p.m. there wow. in uh, in Hong Kong. And I've actually experienced this before, and we'll talk about it a little bit because I've I actually I yeah. lived in China for a year, which is really cool. But um, awesome, man. Well, so we're gonna have a, a really interesting chat about kind of the world that you come from, why you're with our with us here at uh, Watchbox, and then maybe um, talk about like the Asian perspective or the Hong Kong perspective of watch collecting sure. as well, because I think it's it definitely is different than it is uh, here in um, uh, in the U.S. So before that, as always, we have our customary wrist check. So Frankie, what do you got on the wrist? Okay, well, this will be no surprise to the uh, Hong Kong team, but I am wearing my Oyster Perpetual, the 124-300 Green Dial, and I think this honestly represents um, the first watch that really got me into watches. Like, I was into tech, like I said, for many years before that. And when I saw this on Twitter, I think at some point, I saw a photo of these, and I just went crazy for this green dial. Green is my favorite color. Uh, I went to Notre Dame for undergrad, so go Irish. You know, green is my... It's just a part of my DNA, and so when I saw this watch, it just brought me down the rabbit hole of watch passion, and it was my first Rolex also that I ever purchased, and it's going to be a part of the permanent collection for sure. Awesome, man. Congratulations. That's a great watch. I, I've had my eye on a, on a few of the OPs. I, I like colorful dials. I realize I, I have in my collection. It's a little crazy now. I'm actually down to about 30 watches from around 40 Um you know, uh, watches and that's anything from Seiko's all the way to AP. But I just realized I don't have a green dial. I have, I have blue dials. I have white dials. I have, I even have a yellow dial. I have a bunch of different colors with my Seiko's and whatnot. I don't have a green dial watch. So maybe that's something, maybe that's next on the, on the list, but, um, all right, cool, man. You've inspired me, man. I like that watch a lot. That's a great watch. And it's, you know, it's, it certainly trades over list, but it's not one of these ones that's trading three and four times. So maybe, uh, Maybe at the end of the year, that'll be a birthday present for myself, and, and we'll have matching OPs. Awesome. That'd be cool. Awesome. Cool, man. So, um, well, on my wrist, I have a watch that's been, I guess you call it my summer watch. I mean, I'll, <laughs> I look at my collection, which I have my core pieces here um, next to me here, and I'm looking at them, and I realize most of my watches are essentially summer watches. Um, I mean, I live in South Florida nice. when we ha- where we have two seasons. I have We have summer and spring. Um, but, uh, so the watch I'm wearing today is my, uh, titanium offshore. This is the first iteration. I know they just released a, a new iteration of this watch, but this is the two, six, one, seven, zero TI. Um, this is the, uh, it's basically a, a monochromatic 
watch. So it has you know this the grayish tint for the of the titanium metal, and then the dial, which is also gray with um, uh, black indices or black numerals, black subdials with little specks of red on at the end of some of the hands that they have there. It's it's a really cool watch. Um, I've I've owned this now since 2019. I've really enjoyed the watch. Um, it comes on a full titanium bracelet, though. Uh, <clears throat> a friend of mine sent me some aftermarket straps. I have this silicon bright green, very supple strap, and I got it. Strap right there. Yeah, yeah, I like it, man. I, I've been wearing it on this watch, so you know, I like, I love the bracelet. I think it's it's awesome on the bracelet, very well balanced. But for summer, I kind of like having a um a rubber strap on the watch and also if i'm in and out of the pool and i'm kind of if i'm wearing it as an everyday watch one of the things about the bracelets is you know they're going to get scratched up more uh because there's more surface area there so i don't mind swapping out the straps and i and i really really enjoyed this watch it's it's a little flashy in that sense it's a little bit fun with this kind of bright green i think the think, strap is made by a company called midas oh nice yeah i mean yeah, you know, i think we have that in common also, with like Hong Kong being such a tropical environment, Miami or Fort Lauderdale, like, you know, southern Florida is like super humid, right? So you can mm -hmm. only really wear, I mean, I can only really wear two things, which is bracelets or rubber straps. Leather yeah. is just like a no-go in this climate. It really isn't. I'm sure it's the same, it's the same there. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I have I have one watch on a leather strap, and it's the Panerai. It's the very first watch I ever bought. Actually, I have it right here. Uh it is a my Panerai 380, and it's on a leather strap. I barely wear the watch. I wear it kind of for special occasions just because it is, it does have sentimental value uh, to me. I mean, all my watches have sentimental value. This has the most, being my first kind of Swiss watch I ever purchased um, back in I guess 2013, and uh, it's on a leather strap now. Uh, again, it barely gets worn. It's not going to be worn during the summer because yeah, this strap will sweat out in probably about a day or so if I, yeah. if I were to wear it in this heat. Um, but yeah, so that's. That's what I got on my wrist. Um, you got the the Rolex, so Rolex and AP well represented. And uh, so let's go ahead and jump right into it, Frankie. So um, why don't you kind of give our listeners a little bit of a background on, on who you are, what you do, and why you're now part of the Watchbox team. Yeah, so my you know journey to get to this point of being client advisor at Watchbox Hong Kong, it's, it's really crazy because for some reason, watches have always been a part of my life. They've always been around my life. But for some reason, I, I was the last person in my family to get into them. Um, back in the 90s, my dad was actually uh, working in watches. He was a banker for many years, but for a period of time, he was also also helping a, a company that ran a business, um, which was Ball Watch. And he was oh. the CEO of Ball Watch Americas back in the like late 90s, early 2000s. And so I have this old collection of ball watches, which is like, as you know, it's the, the watch that built the railroads of America, right? And yeah, so I've owned, I I've owned quite a few of them. Yeah. So like I was exposed to like ball and to just automatic watches from an early age. And then later on, my sister, um, she went to university, she studied history, and then she started working right out of college at Sotheby's. And she ended up joining the watch department um, where she eventually met uh, her now husband and they were both in the auction world. My brother-in-law, uh, Tim, he, he was like a really into, I guess he was one of the top auctioneers at some of the top uh, auction houses at uh, Sotheby's, Christie's. He was the guy who sold the, um, the Henry Graves super complication. 
And so he was yeah. the person, he was the auctioneer that day. And I remember when he told me that story, I was just like, oh, that's cool. You know, that's pretty neat. But it didn't mean anything to me, like how important that was at the time. Um, so I've had people in my family who've always been into watches, but I guess my start was I went to Notre Dame for architecture. I've always been a, a fan of like design. I've always been into this kind of thing, but I've always also been into another thing, which is technology. And I think probably five or six years ago, my passion for tech was becoming a big thing, especially uh, smartphones like iPhones, Samsung. Uh, being in Hong Kong, as you know, you get a lot of these crazy uh, releases from China that uh, arrive here before they arrive in other parts of the world. And so about four years ago, I just decided to start filming these phones that I was buying. Uh, one thing led to another, and I built this pretty sizable tech YouTube channel in the last four years um, called Frankie Tech. And it's now, I think, the number five or six biggest tech channel in Hong Kong. We have 230,000 wow. subscribers, over 60 million views uh, on that channel. And it's been a crazy ride, you know. So um, from having been in, into tech, so passionate about it, I never imagined there would be another uh, another passion that would not only like get in the way of tech, but almost take it over completely in this past year. And that's watches. Um, watches have just been this crazy rabbit hole that has brought me to this point. And I guess it was almost like dumb luck that the week that I was getting to watches was May of last year. And I bought my first luxury watch. It was a Tudor Black Bay GMT. And I was so excited about it. I went to my brother-in-law and I showed it to him. I was like, Tim, this is amazing. Like I've I've gone down the rabbit hole. I didn't have this OP yet, but um, for and for some reason he obviously very well connected in the watch world. He said, "Well, that's interesting because I just spoke with a a friend of mine and they have a vacancy in their company that just became available." Like, um, and he you know he said, "Look, let's let's set up a meeting." Uh, before I knew it, within like a week, I was speaking with uh, Josh, our colleague here in Hong Kong, Josh Rolovitz, and. And, you know, the rest is history. Just went through the, that process. And it, I think the best way I can describe it is almost like, imagine if you had just gotten into phones, like technology, and then the next week, Apple calls you and says, hey, do you want to come and join us to designing, you know, the next iPhone? Like, it would be that level of, of, of uh, craziness, you know, of the timing. And so it just seems so amazing that my passion, my new passion of watches, aligned so well with now joining this amazing company Watchbox and being able to to you know be around these amazing pieces and talking with clients and sharing the passion every day. Wow. So there's a lot to unpack there, man. For first of all, as somebody who's been with the company for almost a decade, for you to say that like Watchbox is the Apple uh uh equivalent for watches that <laughs> Apple is for technology, that's pretty cool, man. It it you know, sometimes I have to kind of pinch myself to to, you know, uh, understand and realize like kind of the, the size and the breadth of the company now because you know when we started back when it was watch you want <clears throat> um you know i was now it was like about 2013 or so and and uh you know we were a small company we had five or six salespeople, you know running out of a, a small office down here in fort lauderdale and it was and you know wow. uh, we we thought we were a really large company we were probably large at the time for uh, comparatively to any other companies that were selling buying and selling pre owned watches because that wasn't really a thing now there's you know you have watch finder you have us you have you know hodinky and crown and caliber all these guys but uh that's that's awesome man well number one 
I, I welcome you to the team. Um, I think that, you know, uh, as we grow, we're, we're kind of, we're, get, we're attracting more and more um, really interesting people to our team. And I think it's, it's only, you know, it's only great. or It's only a good thing that we have more and more very passionate people. And number two is like, one thing for me, so like, you know, you, you got into watches right before you started working for us. So my introduction to watches was, was Watchbox or, or Watch You Want. So I didn't, I honestly had no understanding of watches whatsoever. I was a salesperson. You know, I, like I said, I worked in, or uh, like I've said on some of my, my old podcasts, I haven't talked about it in a, a while and you and I will kind of chat about this, but I lived and worked in Shanghai for, before I worked for Watchbox. That was my, that's, that was my transition. I worked for, uh, I, I had my own uh, actual uh, wholesale company here in Florida with a partner of mine. And we were buying and selling actually iPhones. It started from literally flipping wow. iPhones when there was kind of a gray market for, for iPhones. Yeah, we started that, um, I guess it would have been tw- 2008. And then uh, we we built uh, <laughs> something that you would ca- loosely call a company. It was just uh, my partner and I, but kind of hustling around. We started with, I always tell the story, we started with $1,200. And, um, by the end of the first month, we were had about 25,000 bucks. And then I think we, we estimated in that four year period. And it's definitely an estimation because we had no records whatsoever. Like early twenties, didn't know what the hell we were doing other than just, Hey, we understood that we could make a profit. So I think we did about $5 million in sales from like 2008 to about like mid 2011. Um, and then <laughs> mismanagement of, of our you know, quote unquote company led to some disagreements and whatnot. So we decided to cash out and then I ended up moving to, to, to China and Shanghai. But, um, when I, when I, uh, when I got the chance to come work for Watchbox, I was just, I was looking for a sales job, right? That was me. I'm from the sales background. I've always kind of, you know, whether it's been in, in high school selling or middle school selling candy or high school selling like Pokemon cards and whatever else. And, and then, you know, uh, graduating and, and looking for different types of, opportunities I've always kind of been on on a, on a track to, to uh, a sales track and and uh, sitting down with uh, our now <clears throat> uh, a uh, an executive for watchbox but the president of watch you one at the time Shannon Beck who I know you've met before um, yes. you know and her explaining to me kind of what they did uh, you know and who the best guys were first of all it blew my mind that there was even a market for this right like um, yeah. you know buying and selling iPhones made sense to me everybody needs a phone. When somebody told yeah. me that they were buying and selling watches, like I didn't know if this was a thing. I knew Rolex because everybody knows Rolex. And I think I knew Tag Heuer as well because I think my dad had one. But I don't think I knew how to pronounce that actually. I think I – like who knows how I said it. But I remember thinking like I didn't realize that there was, this was even an industry. Um, exactly. And then she explained it to me. She showed me uh, you know, what their top guy was making in terms of commission. And I, and I had met him earlier and I decided, well, I'm, I think I'm better than that guy in sales. So I could probably make more money than he's making. So I took the leap. And then, you know, within I think four months is when I bought my, after four months, I bought my, uh, my Panerai, my Pan 380 radio mirror, wire lug radio mirror. And I've been obsessed with, with watches ever since. And I always tell people like, you know, if you're looking for a sales job, right. Um, there's a couple things that are like, cause you could be, you could sell anything, right? Everything that's, everything that exists is basically being sold, right? In this kind of, in a, in a exactly. capitalist society, right? And actually I was in, I was in interviews for a company that sells, essentially sells toilet paper. And I was on my fourth interview. It's probably going to take that job as a larger company. They had a, they were giving a larger base, but a smaller uh, commission opportunity. And, and I was probably going to end up taking that job until I met Shannon at, at Watch You Want. And thank God I did because, 
you know, I can't imagine my life I mean, if I was selling toilet, toilet paper. paper too, right? But you know. Yeah, I guess, uh, but uh, <laughs> but so the thing that's what's so great about you know buying and selling watches is that number one, you're dealing with passionate people for the most part, right? Like there's nobody who's passionate about buying toilet paper. It's something you need to buy, not something yeah. you want to buy, right? I mean, maybe there's somebody who's passionate about buying uh, buying toilet paper, but I honestly, I don't think I want to meet them. And, um, you know, with watches, you know, you're dealing with hobbyists, you're dealing with people who are either celebrating success, which that's probably the, that's the best way to sum up the reason to buy a watch, right? Is you're celebrating yeah. your success. Nobody, nobody is, you know, uh, uh, basically, you know, destitute and, and looking to buy uh, uh, a Swiss watch, right? You just, it just doesn't happen, right? Yeah. So you're pe- dealing with people who are selling, celebrating success or if they're already past that phase and now they're a full-on collector, they're buying things because they're passionate about them, right? This is not a need. This is a want. So you're dealing with passionate people. You're also dealing with like hyper-successful people, right? Like my book of business, I'm sure yours is or will be, is full of extremely successful people within their world, right? So like I deal with tech executives, I deal with dealers, uh, car dealership owners, I deal with heads of state, um, I deal with like, you know, uh, NBA, NFL players, like extremely high, highly successful people, which is which is really cool because that's one thing that kind of ties the entire watch collecting community together. People don't even realize that sometimes, but you know, the one thing that essentially all watch collectors have in in uh, in common is that they're very successful people, right? For one way or the that's other, cool. unless they inherited all their money. But even still, you know, that's there's a level of success there too, right? So yeah, um, you know, you're dealing with with uh, passionate, successful people, and the watches themselves are highly addictive. You know, you can you learn about the you know the watchmakers and the small brands or the companies for the large brands, and then you know you get to experience these things. So like for example, you know I, I'm down to three Panerais in my in my collection now, but like I love each and every one of them. There are two of them are similar. One's a little bit different in terms of their models, and they're just you just get to kind of you get to see the the love, passion, and design that goes into creating these little pe- the works of art that you know other people are very passionate about. So it's exactly. it's such a it's such a great experience, you know. Again, you could be selling anything. You could be selling, you know, uh, cell phones, which people get passionate about, and they're pretty cool. Yeah. But you know, you're not gonna you're not gonna have the diversity in customer, in my opinion, and like the exclusivity of customer. Right? You're not gonna be dealing yeah. with like some of the most tough to get a hold of people on the planet because these people are so important. So I, I don't. Know. It's it's yeah. such a cool and, job. And I think you know, like that's a great point you bring up because obviously when the you know when the, uh, smartphone the whole smartphone thing started there was this idea of like innovation and every new iphone that was released was this groundbreaking thing you went from like the original iphone to then you had the iphone 4 with the retina display and they added facetime it were these there were these amazing things that just kept you just riveted to this this scene and unfortunately i think what's happened with phones now they've kind of plateaued they've there's they've gotten good enough to the point where the innovations that used to excite me in the phone space or in the technology space they've really plateaued and also you talk about the audience you know i've definitely seen a very different audience obviously from my typical tech audience to the the clients that i'm working with now i actually started a small frankie watch channel now i have just a thousand subscribers on it but like the level of quality of of audience and just the interest and the, the the engagement is very different from covering 
what is essentially a consumer product. Like phones are, are amazing and we use them every day, but they've really been commoditized to the point that they've lost a bit of that soul. And I think maybe in some way I was searching for something, a product that had that soul in it, which I found in watches. Watches just have this this other layer be, uh, beyond just the technology, the speeds and the feeds. It's it's design, it's uh, you know history, it's technology, and there's other aspects I think of watches that you can engage on that you really just can't with tech. And so I think in a way that that just makes it an even more exciting hobby to be into. And and like you said, it just elevates the level of people that you're talking to as well. Yeah, it's awesome, right? So like again, like this this job, I think we're very lucky to be in this industry, especially at this time, right? When I started, it was a, like again, like nobody knew. I didn't know what a paddock was, Patek Philippe. I didn't know what Audemars Piguet. I didn't know any of these things. And now watches have since about 2017, and I we're not going to go deep into that because I've talked about it ad nauseum. Anybody who's listened to my podcast has known this story. But since 2017, watches have become kind of mainstream, and now like kids on the street know what a Patek Philippe is. I mean, yeah. you know, they know what an Audemars is. They know what a Rolex Skydweller is. You know, it's it's become kind of mainstream. So, like, you know, me looking at it from kind of pre-2017 and then having, like, meeting guys like you who kind of are in it now, it's like, man, I can't imagine what it would be like to, to get into watches in this type of environment where it's just totally mainstream. It's not niche. Um, you know, it's, exactly. it's pretty amazing. And then – and yeah – and I've never known a world. I just joke about this with my uh, with my colleagues here in Hong Kong. Like I've never never known a world where you could buy something uh, at retail or with a discount, like a Rolex with a discount. Like that that's, this doesn't that doesn't exist to me. Whereas like for they they assure me and Josh here, love you, Josh. Astrology uh, is like I can assure you. I remember when Submariners were like you know you get discounts on them. And not only discounts, like you could get them dirt cheap, and you just yep. cannot justify the prices of a of a no date one two four zero six zero now, like a, or a, you know the one two six six LN whatever the 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 dates of marriage. Like he can't just he can just cannot justify the prices that we see, even with this downturn that we're having right now. And he's like, no, they're still too high. They're still too high. It's I, I don't know that world. So obviously, you you guys have been in it for a long time. Oh yeah. that world. It's crazy. Oh yeah, we listen. I I passed on a Hulk Submariner at fifty five hundred dollars. This would have been a, probably my after my first year with the company or second year with the company. I think it was twenty fifteen, so like two and a half years in, and I uh, I wanted to buy a watch for myself. It, I hadn't really spent too. I had the, I spent about three thousand dollars on this on my Panerai, and I thought, okay, I'm doing well. I'm making sales. I'm at that time I was the number one uh, commission salesperson in terms of. Um, in terms of production and I'm like, all right, maybe I want to get this green sub. So I asked to wear it for the weekend. I'm like, Hey guys, we have one in inventory it was pre-owned. Our cost was 5,500. I think we're selling it for seven grand. Can I wear it over? Can I wear it over the weekend? The answer was yes. So I wore it over the weekend and on Monday I brought it back, put it back in inventory and decided it was too green for me. I didn't really <laughs> love it. So I, I decided to pass on it. Now, you know, I mean, well, it got up to about 30 grand. I don't know what, I think they're what 20 at this point right now. They came down from yeah. from you know the January price but uh yeah it's it's a it's a crazy world it's definitely a different world you know i i tend to be a more of an optimist about everything in general especially with business right like people always look at like change is bad price change up price change down you know people complain oh the prices are too high oh my god the watches the watch market is collapsing the prices are too too are low i'm like listen price is just the price right like it's 
it, it, you know, it, it's I think movement in a market is good for uh, for the companies that are in it, right? As long as you're you're prepared to kind of handle that movement, you're not like stuck on okay, well this this should be this price or that should be this price. Like it's silly, right? Like in our, in our type of, our economy, prices are going to move. You know, demand's going to move, um, supply is going to move. So you know, just kind of rolling with the punches and and doing kind of what we do is like, listen, right now at this point, you know. It's no, there's no, uh, you know, there's no misconception here, right? In January, prices were on a lot of watches 30% higher than what they are now. They're still well above retail, which shows that demand is definitely outpacing supply in terms of that. But prices inflated way too high um, in a short period of time. I've talked about it on the podcast with Manjos, and we kind of examined that and, and kind of what we thought was happening there. Um, and then like that little bubble, right? Uh, that started kind of late December of 2021 and ended right around uh, April of 2022, popped and uh, and prices came down. We're selling watches for below our cost. Like that's just, you know, we were paying the market price then, the market price now is below our cost. We're selling those watches. We're not crying. We're not just trying to hold on and say, oh, well, the prices will come back. It is what it is, right? You move with the market, Um, which is another fascinating aspect of the watch game for us or for me, Personally, just again, like, you know, I come from sales background, right? Like I'm not, I didn't, I didn't come into watches because I loved watches. I came into watches because I was in sales and I was looking for another opportunity. I grew my level of watches or uh, my passion for watches by dealing with passionate people, right? Like that always rubs off on me. That's the kind of person I am. Listen, there's, I can become passionate probably about anything. If I spend enough time with somebody who's truly passionate about it, I will become passionate about it, right? Like I have a bunch of hobbies. I'm extremely passionate about them. So, uh, you know, in, in the watch world, you know, if you just, you maintain your passion, uh, you're going to do well, I guess, in, in terms of, um, you know, sales and whatnot. I think that's really important. And I think that's one thing that you, you know, you bring to the table is that you are, you're extremely passionate about technology, but you, that passion can be transferred, right? Like you, you're passionate about watches as well. And, and I mean, honestly, like, and just thinking about where I am, obviously Hong Kong being such an incredible location for tech. Well, it also turned out that Hong Kong was also an incredible location for watches and like, you know, yeah. I, just thinking about all the, you know, watch auctions that I went to at when my sister was working like at, at Bonhams or in Sotheby's before, like seeing all these amazing pieces here. And then obviously Hong Kong having no tax being a very great place to be able to buy watches and and, and just seeing all these dealers like in, you, you go to the, the, the malls here, the phone malls. Well, now it's funny, all these phone malls that used to sell like all the Samsungs and all the, the China phones, they're slowly being replaced by watch, little watch shops, little watch dealers. And it's because, you know, there's genuinely been an interest, like a shift in, uh, you know, this interest in watches. You are seeing so many more places where where people are, are, are getting into this business. And obviously, you know, maybe some of those small guys, they can't really, their margins are very different, right, than a, a large player like us. But just being able to walk into these areas and seeing all of these amazing timepieces now and just like and in close proximity because you know in Hong Kong everything's packed tight you can go to like 15 watch shops in like a you know 100 100 yard uh, you know distance it's it's just insane to to have that uh, that backdrop for this passion so i i really think it's almost like it was just meant to be that the the passion i got into which was watches 
is in this location, which is one of the best places to get into watches, really. So, so let's talk a little bit more about that, right? So, uh, in terms of your background, right? Um, you you live in Hong Kong. Um, yeah. I don't detect a uh, a Chinese accent. So, no. why don't you tell me? Yeah, why don't you tell me a little bit of your uh, of your background? You know, how did you how did you end up in Hong Kong? Where are you from yeah. originally? Uh, go for it. Yeah. Yeah, so basically I'm what I, we call like a third culture kid, so like a longtime expat. But I'm originally from El Salvador. That's where my parents were from. And um, my dad worked for Citibank for nearly 30 years. Uh, he was also in, in, in the watch business for a bit as well. But his job basically brought us to Asia in the 80s. I was born in the, in the Philippines. I was there when I was born. My, my dad was stationed there. And then we moved to Hong Kong when I was age two and basically lived the life of a of an international student but like I essentially went to American schools my entire life and so people ask me where did I get my American accents because I all my friends were American all my teachers were American and I, I took the Iowa test growing up you know like I, I was fully like Americanized in terms of like my my just education and everything so I think you know, but growing up, obviously, as, you know, out of your culture, that's what's what we call third culture kid is, is just like an international person who doesn't really live in the country they're originally from. Uh, but obviously, all my sisters, I have three older sisters, they all ended up going to the States. Uh, we all went to the States for university. My dad went to Berkeley. So, like, it was always a plan for us to go to the States for university. So I ended up at Notre Dame, and I was there for five years. Then I worked in D.C. in architecture for a couple years. But that's when, I think it was 2008, 2009, Lehman, all that thing happened, collapse. And I had two options, either go back to El Salvador, which is a culture that I know, but it's not really like me, or go to Hong Kong, where I was a permanent resident, had grown up there and had still friends there. So I decided to come back to Hong Kong. That's kind of how I ended up back here for the past uh, 10 years and was in a bunch of different under, other industries. But um, ultimately, like, you talk about sales and sales has been something I've also been doing for quite a while and maybe a different way, like in admissions. I worked with a few business uh, MBA programs in this, uh, for this ed tech company, US based. And um, yeah, I just, it, it's just crazy to think that uh, in the end, like if I told you I was from, I don't know, from somewhere in the States, like you might believe me because you wouldn't hear a tinge of any accent whatsoever. And, and funny enough, like uh, before we moved to Asia, um, we were living in Miami. This is where my parents were living. Hey. And we had a home uh, for many years afterwards. We'd go visit like during the summers and everything in Coral Gables. Um, oh, so nice. I kind of always have this connection with Miami and with our second home in Coral Gables. Um, and Fort Lauderdale, I love Fort Lauderdale. Been there for spring break before. It, it's just... Um, there's always connections to the States as well. They, I think if I told you I was from, I don't know, New York or I don't know, Fort Lauderdale, you, you would just believe it. So Yeah, that's <laughs> awesome. So do you, do you speak Chinese, Cantonese, Mandarin? So I, well, I speak Spanish fluently, but I did take, um, funny enough, like because of my, uh, you know, when I left uh, Hong Kong to go to El Salvador, I finished up my high school there. I was ready to start taking Mandarin, but my sister is actually fluent in Mandarin, and she just went through the entire way of it. Um, I actually took Japanese in college for a bit, so I did like take that for a couple years. But I think that's probably one of the big regrets is that I never got into the Mandarin. And I'm sure you, having been in Shanghai, right, you probably did get into the the Mandarin quite a bit, right? 
Yeah, I was, uh, I guess you would call like semi-fluent. I, I, I mean, I, I'm a bit of an obsessive person as it is. Um, so when you dump me in a, in a, in a new culture, like I was there with my then fiance, now wife, mother of my children, and she had never left Florida before we went to China. So, but I travel, my father likes, loves to travel. He kind of ingrained that in me. So when I got there, like, I was like, okay, well, I'm going to be working, living here. I I mean, it, it wasn't imperative for me to learn Chinese, but it, it, it definitely helped. So, and I'm like, listen, I, you know, I'm in a city of, I don't know, 20 million people, Shanghai, like I could probably find some people to speak Chinese with. So, so, um, my boss at the time gave me, uh, the book that, that he learned Chinese with, uh, which I still have it around here somewhere. And he said, here, start with this book. And then once you get done with the chapter, go out and try to talk to people using that, using, you know, uh, that what you learn in that chapter. So I did that, but I like hypercharged it and I studied, I don't know four or five hours a day, honestly, like any of my free time for the first almost six months I did. So, um, I definitely can't read and write it. Uh, and that's a whole different thing. If anybody knows, like in my, so my opinion is, um, Mandarin Chinese is very easy to learn to speak, uh, nearly impossible to learn to read and write, right? It's like, it's very, very different, but I mean, it's from, from the, uh, from a, a speaking perspective, it's actually a pretty simple language. Um, you know, they, they do have, um, like the tones, right? Like intonations, sure. but it's, it's, it's more contextual that I, I found that was more contextual. And, you know, there are definitely di- different dialects and, you know, somebody from Shanghai might not be able to understand somebody from far out Western China totally, but you can kind of get by. And I found that people being that I found that the people that I spoke to were so friendly and they were so interested in speaking with me. So it helped me big time. So I'd say that I could, I could definitely have a full conversation um, and maybe one or only one or two misunderstandings that could be figured out throughout the conversation by about six months. Yeah. Um, but since the, I mean, that was 10 years ago, I still know a lot of words I can count. Um, and, uh, I, I, the way my mind works, I could probably, if I studied for probably, uh, two or three months, I could probably be back to where I was there, like semi-fluent. Yeah. Uh, but at this point, like, unless you're speaking extremely slowly to me, um, yeah. and I'm, and I'm like, and I'm not tired whatsoever. Like I've had a big cup of coffee or whatever. Like, yeah, I'm not going to understand Chinese anymore, yeah. but it's no, a cool I mean, language. I, I'd say it's definitely worth learning. It'd be amazing to have you uh, come out here and then, uh, you know, cause we got, uh, obviously the Shang, uh, well, we got like the, some Shanghai based, uh, team as well. Yeah. And here in Hong Kong, it's definitely becoming a bigger tool for you know, talking with clients and uh, two of our, well, Eureka, two of our other uh, colleagues, they have to switch to Mandarin from the local Cantonese, which is the Hong Kong uh, language. They have to switch to Mandarin mm-hmm. on the phone quite a bit because we're just getting right so much of that. So I think it would be super, super awesome to have you here at some point to, to, sure. to maybe get some rust off that uh, Putonghua. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. I love that. So uh, yeah, man, I would love to come out there. We'll see. I have I have a two-year-old and I have another one on the way. So spending spending too much time away from home is going to be tough. But I I do plan on on bringing the family out to, to the Hong Kong office. And listen, if I could awesome. if I could spend a month out there, I bet you I could probably pick it right back up again. Oh yeah. But uh, sure. awesome, man. So so in terms of like the watch world and like the different cultures, right? So you have a good perspective. Yeah. You've you've uh, lived in and worked and uh, and studied in the U.S. You obviously live in in Hong Kong. Have you well so. Have you lived anywhere else in Asia besides Hong Kong? 
Um, so I did live in uh, for one year in Singapore, but that was when I was younger. Uh, I definitely have spent some time in like in other countries. I have friends in like from Taiwan and from uh, obviously from my time in uh, studying Japanese. I uh, I've spent quite a bit of time there as well. Uh, but I'd say yeah, Hong Kong. Just understanding Hong Kong and obviously the the China market because it's almost like the door into to China at this point. Um, mm-hmm. it, it really is such a unique location to be able to to understand what's going on, uh, not just economically in, in other ways, but uh, for the watch market itself. It's like the jumping off point for all that, for sure. So so then you know that 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 would be, I guess be my next question. Like, what do you see as like a main difference between say watch uh the watch culture and collecting in the u.s or the western style and you know what what you're seeing in in china asia is there a difference um and if so kind of what is it i do feel that there is quite a difference in terms of the um it's not even so much the well obviously we do have like the brands represented that that people are more into here versus Mm -hmm. in the u.s and i don't know if it's uh maybe related to to being into a more traditional style of of watchmaking that I think is maybe appreciated here versus I feel in the US there's there's other aspects of the watch experience that maybe people don't have as much. So um, the idea of like a tool watch, you always uh, see this great, big fascination in the US of, of tool watches or sports watches, um, Rolex, uh, you talk about like Omegas, you talk about like um, you know, wearing watches on NATOs, like there's this whole culture of like the, you know, the, the EDC culture that I hear about in, in different podcasts of just like people using, wanting to kind of engage with with uh, with things in a different way. And, and you don't really see that here as much because it's a very cosmopolitan society. Um, and so I think people really do appreciate the high horology aspect of watchmaking here quite a lot and you see that with the younger collectors quite a lot so which is no you know it's it's no surprise that the independence have become so coveted in this market uh, from FP Journe, you know, in terms of the limited availability, you have Debitune and, and just all the kind of independence that we talk about people really do appreciate attention to detail here and that's just something that you you really can't get with as much as I love it this OP it's a mass-produced watch right and i think there's this this poetry to the independence and to high horology that has really struck a chord with this you know with societies here with with cultures here and people really do appreciate that i think the other aspect also is the the wearability because um a lot of guys here you know believe it or not like my wrist is gargantuan compared to a lot of theirs. Like, and they come on, they try my watch. I'm, I have a seven and a half inch, seven three quarter inch wrist. It's, I'd say it would be pretty standard by U.S. you know standards. But like, uh, a lot of these guys come in, they're wearing maybe like an Explore two forty two millimeter, and it's just you know it's a big watch on their wrist. So they really have gravitated towards a lot more of these dress pieces. I see a lot of people really getting into, um, you know, loving to wear these. 34, 35 millimeter like paddocks and and I think Jorn is kind of in that that range of the 38s, the 40s, but it's just it, it's more attention to detail and this appreciation for high horology coupled with maybe slightly smaller wrists in terms of like uh, sizing that all kind of gravitates towards certain brands versus I don't know your Doxas or your your giant uh, Breitling Emergencies. I don't know. <laughs> So, okay, I have a few things 
So, well, number one, it's funny because I always talk about this and, you know, there's a huge watch buying culture in Asia. And whenever we talk about like the size of the watch, so like I have somebody ask me like, why are the 44 millimeter um, offshores not as kind of hot as say like the 15202s or even the 41 millimeter um, AP uh, Royal Oaks? And I think the main reason for this is that you're cutting out a large segment of the watch buying public in the world because you know a 44 millimeter watch is not really going to sell in Asia because of the wrist size like that's going to be a big factor there right so you know yeah. anything really over 42 is not going to have is not going to be you're going to you're cutting out a large segment of the watch buying public uh you know globally there and then the other thing is that you know and I talked to Mike Mandris about this he's always mentioning this and maybe you'll see this too, is that trends kind of come from Asia and then move over towards towards the US, right? So like if we see, like especially in pricing, uh, you know, uh, Hong Kong has always been kind of a hub for watch trading. There's always been those shops that are just jam-packed full of these watches and whatnot, obviously more now than ever. But whenever we're looking for like trends on watches, like, oh, you know, what's what's happening in the in the watch world in terms of pricing? We look to Hong Kong first. Like, what are we seeing? What is this watch liquid for in Hong Kong? Um, yeah. That's always a call we make, and that was, I think, one of the reasons why we opened up Hong Kong first as a as our first international office is because it is kind of the watch buying hub of Asia, which is going to be you know a huge population of the world, um, and it's going to be kind of the tip of the spear. It seems like exactly. Um, so, like that's that's one thing that's kind of interesting. And I'd say the last thing is that it's funny when you say that. Um, you know, uh, Americans or the Western culture is more kind of obsessed with like tool watches. It, I think it kind of comes from like the, like that military culture, right? Like yep. people, you know, whether you're in the military or not, like the EDC is, you know, everyday carry people have, you know, knives, which my friend, uh, Jason Maine is obsessed with, you know, carries weapons yep. with him all the time. Um, knives, watches, funky, weird wallets and like firearms, like all that kind of goes together. Well, number one, I don't know about it, Hong Kong, but mainland China, there are no firearms. It's uh, yeah. these are illegal, no, right? So you don't have that. Okay, so you don't have that. I mean, most most of the world really limits at yeah. least access to these things, right? So you know, America uh, in, in the U.S. and in the West, like we have, you know, much more access to those things. And I guess it kind of it it, it and you know, wearing a dress paddock and then looking at your EDC package, right? So you have like you know, maybe you have a switchblade knife, and you have you know, nine millimeter. Uh, um, uh, you know, carry uh, gun, whatever you have, a Glock or whatever it may be, and then you know, a thirty-four millimeter uh, <laughs> vintage paddock doesn't really go together. So I think maybe that you know, that's I guess that's a theory that I just kind of thought of now. That's probably why um, the U.S. is or or the Western watch collectors are a little bit more. Um, they're they're looking for more of a utilitarian watch as opposed to focusing on the. Um, the artfulness of the watches, though th I think that is changing. You know, I'm having more and more, yeah. um, you know, American collectors who are just becoming super obsessed with, you know, the high horology uh, of of some of these uh, amazing independents like Romain Gautier. Yeah. You have Debatoon. Um, you have obviously Jorn. So I think that is that maybe that's like a a, a a symptom of globalization where like you're meshing these two cultures. And that's one thing living in yeah. China and, and seeing that like 
first of all, I've noticed that in anybody I think who's who's traveled and spent like a real amount of time, not just dropped in for you know a, a week or whatever, but like really lived in another country, you realize number one, everybody's the same. You know, like you know, I go to China and I'm and I. Yep. And I can find common ground with any person that I meet there. Exactly. And it's not just like we're just like our cultures are so different that we're alien. You know, there are definitely some awesome differences. And I think that's really cool too. Like, you know, the history that goes into making, you know, a mainland China essentially at this point, right? You know, 5,000 years of history <clears throat> that, that these people, their cultures held on to is really, really interesting and amazing. And, you know, but then meshing with the Western culture of kind of like everything has to be new, more utilitarian has is creates an amazing world in my opinion um you know i'm, I'm kind of a fan of, yeah, of that really kind amazing. of globalization for that reason yeah and it's and it's amazing like what what brands also like do better like in in the china mm -hmm. market you know versus in, in the states like I, I mean obviously i think rolex still does well but there's like some other Everywhere. brands apparently i've heard like Breguet, for example is like apparently very popular in in, in mainland china like super popular mm -hmm. and you know just brands that like you would maybe not associate is like uh yes they're they're great brands but they're not like to the the tier of of like the holy trinity or like the ap's the rolex the paddocks you know and and so i think there's definitely an identity that a lot of these collectors have in 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 china and also in hong kong that that um maybe will be trend setting at some point um i can't imagine that, that would, if that would mean like people are gonna all gonna start wearing uh, 36 millimeter watches in the States in the next couple of years, but uh, you know, you never know. So I do think you're right about how the, uh, the world is connected and how these trends uh, are definitely, uh, you know, crossing the, crossing the globe. It really does. Uh, and you see it here for sure. It's amazing. Absolutely. So what I, well, I want to know kind of more about your collecting style and whatnot. So you said you've just started kind of collecting, um, I, if I fo I followed you on Instagram and I saw that you had some new pickups, obviously you told me your first watch was a Tudor. You have this OP. Yeah. So kind of what else do you have in your collection and what do you like? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I, I think funny enough, like I actually associate, um, myself with a bit more of the U S the more American kind of approach to collecting or at least just thinking about, um, you know, watches as a tool, but with like a history to them, maybe that's why I got really into divers. I would say divers was like the thing that I just got so into. I keep looking at my watch box and I just got like too many divers, but I've also expanded beyond that because when I first started, of course, I, I didn't, I couldn't afford um, Rolex. So I got into Tudor. I had a Black Bay GMT. I bought the Black Bay Chrono. I even had the Pelagos FXD for a period of time. That was a great watch. Um, but as you know, like in this game, and I think maybe it's just the reality of my colleagues always telling me, well, those tutors are nice, but, you know, if you considered uh, maybe leveling up. And so uh, eventually kind of got into more Rolex recently. Um, and so, like, I have this. Obviously, this is a, this is a uh, Submariner. <laughs> this is the uh, 1266 NLV. Oh, uh, no. no, it's the, the new oh, Submariner. Oh, and actually, oh, this nice. was uh, the, the Starbucks or whatever some people are. This was call something it. I just had put my name on the list for a long time ago, and um, you know was able to get it. Super, supremely lucky. Uh, but uh, there's another watch here that I can definitely point out, which I, I really do love. I don't know why I love this watch so much. It's just the oh, the new Speedmaster Speed Sapphire Sandwich, and um, and you have one too. <laughs> so, oh, I got the old version. I like yeah. the, I don't love the new bracelet. I have the older version. Oh, really? Okay. I actually have, yeah. I bought 
the uh, the previous one, and then I actually sold it because I don't know why. I, I do like this bracelet, but I know what you mean. It's a bit old-fashioned in that way. And the taper, some people have complained the taper is just ridiculous on this watch. It's a bit much. Yeah. But it's a great watch. I mean, I but yeah, just every, not my Every style. collection uh, you know, deserves to have a speedy. And uh, last but not least, I did have a, a Batman that I, I, I bought. Like, I, I keep selling watches to try to buy others. So I feel like my mm -hmm. collection hasn't really grown too much because I just keep consolidating into the, each other. Um, but I guess this is probably the most exciting piece I just uh, picked up. Um, where is it? There it is. Yeah, there it is. Oh, <laughs> look at that. So if you're, if you're listening to this... He just point, pointed a uh, a ceramic white dial Daytona at the at my camera here. So, oh wow, and, that's uh, amazing! Look at that. Yeah, thank you. No, I I honestly like uh, of all the kind of hype watches, and yes, I know this is totally a hype watch. This has been totally overplayed and everything, but I guess you know since I got into a green oyster perpetual green dial, I've been into hype watches from the moment I got into watches. Yeah. <laughs> But mm -hmm. um, no, I saw this one actually at uh, an auction, probably like in May of last year. My brother-in-law, he was working for Bonhams at the time. And I just saw this piece and I just immediately fell in love with it. And I said, you know, this is definitely going to be one of those pieces. Like if I ever were to get it, um, you know, that's going to be one of these grail. It's definitely not my grail though. I'll tell you what my grail is in a second. Mm -hmm. But as you know, because of the watch market, how it's been, this watch was up there in the high 40s 50,000s range the Panda Daytona and yep. there's no way ever that I would have been able to afford this watch until we had this downturn and so there are benefits to you mm -hmm. know market corrections and watches going down in price so much that then you then ask yourself can I sell these two watches and, and pick this up and make something happen that you just never imagined was possible and that's kind of what I did I do miss the Batman still and I miss this other uh, this other OP that I had, but honestly, I'm, I'm loving this Panda Daytona. It's, it's amazing. I don't know if I'll keep it, you know, forever, but it's, I'm enjoying it for now. Um, looks good yeah. on you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> That's awesome. I've owned, I've owned that model a few times. I've also had the black dial. I liked it. Which one do you like better, just, the black or the, the white? So like Tim Masso, I like the black better, but honestly, my tastes change almost on a daily basis, man. Like people always say, oh, you know, what's better? It's like, okay, well, it depends on how I feel, right? So like, I've owned both watches. I've, I tend to like the black dial better. And for the same reason that Tim says is that it looks a little larger on the wrist, like a big black disc on the True. wrist. But, you know, depending if I'm looking, so like the white dial is a little flashier, right? Like that you have the contrast of the black bezel on the white dial. So that's always nice. Um, yeah, but I mean, it's, so my favorite Daytona ever is the one I owned uh, back in 2019. I had the full rose gold with the black dial rose subs, um, uh, one, one, six, five, oh five, which I regret, I think I bought it for 20 and I had it for, I don't know, six months and I ended up selling it for like $22,000. And now it's, you know, between, well, it's 80, depending on where you're looking, between 40 and $60,000 for that watch. So, you know, there's a lot of those in the, in the collection too, especially back then that I've owned. Yeah. I mean, I think I paid, I think the last last Steel Daytona that I bought for myself, I, I paid in the 20s. So I don't know how many years ago that was at this point. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great watch. And listen, people talk about hype watches. There's a reason why they're hyped, right? It's because yeah. a lot of people like these watches, right? Like there's no terrible watches that are hyped 
Like you can't name me one watch. Maybe the price is too much, right? And I and I will yeah. say that I'd say that that the Daytona you're wearing right now is one of the worst fifty thousand dollar watches I've ever seen. You know, at, yeah. at in the thirties, it's certainly more reasonable. Like I'm not buying it in the thirties, but you know, if you're somebody who doesn't want to wait five, ten years, or never be able to get a watch like that at retail, then you know it certainly could be worth it. Um, but, uh, you know, like there's a reason why they're hype watches. I mean, like my AP, this one is not quite a hype watch, but AP as a brand is kind of hyped up and, you know, their watches are, I guess a lot of people would say overpriced, but realistically, you know, there, it, there's a supply and demand, right? And, and yeah. when the, when the price gets a little too crazy, then, you know, there's going to be a, a retraction and that's what we saw, you know, just a few months ago. And that's what we're going through right now. But I'll tell you this as a company, I'm sure you're seeing it too. Yeah. Our volume is up. We're selling more watches. Our our margins are obviously down because the we owned a lot of these watches, and it usually takes, you know, three to six weeks minimum just to get a watch ready for sale, and sometimes even longer than that. So all those watches are victims of, of kind of this downturn, and we'll we'll get through those same as we did in 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 March of 2020 when you know the the world was ending, and now you know there was a huge drop, and you know I think Bitcoin was three thousand dollars, which I was lucky enough, I guess I don't like to say smart enough, but luckily enough to to make some some Bitcoin purchases back then. So even though Bitcoin has quote unquote died again, it's at twenty thousand dollars. I own some Bitcoin at three thousand. So, you know, it's the same thing. You know, people are taking advantage of the current pricing and what and whether or not the pricing is ever going to go back up to what it was in March, um, you know, seems to will, will remain to be seen. But I kind of hope it doesn't go there. I, I like a more stable watch market. I think everybody likes a little bit more stable market in general. And I'm hoping that's kind of what, what will happen. You know, I think that the the watch market has kind of grown to what the re- relative size of what it'll be for the next, say, 10 years. You know, we've seen a kind of, uh, uh, from our data, <coughs> roughly five times the size um, of of you know, the watch collecting public as it was back in 2015 or 2017. And that's being conservative. It might even be more than that, right? But our in terms of our yeah. customer base and our sales and whatnot have grown, you know, more than five times actually. Um, so, you know, it's, I think it's a good thing. But um, what I went off of this tangent about, about hype watches, you know, but yeah, no, so, I mean, so you're, you're more in the Western style of collecting, it sounds like. I, I mean, I think so. And, you know, I just like, I think considering the, the the type of media that I consume as well, it's just like I'm on Hodinky every day. I listen to every all these podcasts. Like I just I'm completely immersed in in you know what's going on in the states in terms of like micro brands. I'm really into micro brands as well. Just fun like you know lower cost watches too. Like and and so I still engage in many different parts of the. What is this? Is this the? So you talk about micro brands, right? So this is a watch. Uh, that I bought last year. Um, I got it in De- It came in, I think, in December. Um, I'm trying to remember the timeline now, but it's from a company called Garrick. I did a podcast oh, with their founder. Yeah, Garrick yeah. is amazing. Um, wow. David Brailsford, the uh, the founder of the company, is is an amazing guy. They just released a new model, but this is my. This was what he tells me was the very last one of these made. This is the Norfolk. Um, oh, or the, the their Norfolk. base model yeah, was there. These hands, the, 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 what are they called? The anchor, anchor hands? Yeah, yes. Exactly. They look like, Those yeah, are so look like unique. Anchors, that is such a cool watch. Maritime watch. But so you talk about, you know, they make about between 75 and 100 watches a year. Maybe he's, maybe he's going to up his production a bit, but very small run, you know, all made to order. Um, and, you know, my buddy Jason Main has, has the, I think it's the S5, which is a little bit more of a, 
um, uh, it's, a, it's a higher level of finishing on that watch, uh, both the, the movement and the, uh, the dial. Um, but, uh, talk about like these small independents, you know, I don't think this watch will ever be worth more than I paid. I think I ended up paying like 4,500 bucks for it or so. Uh, though I don't know if I'll ever sell the watch either. I think it's just an amazing watch. And I think that there's, there's more at this point, there's definitely more space for watches like this. Cause in the past, these watches, if I paid $4,500 for this watch, I'd sell it for maybe a thousand bucks in terms of like a market. Right. So if I, if I cared about that kind of stuff, like there was no market back in 2013, 2012, 2013 for, for watches like this. People bought them. They were really exactly. cool, but you would have to be such an enthusiast to be able to buy something like this. Um, I did see one of these go for sale on eBay and I think it was asking essentially retail on it. So I think they sold it for about what it's worth, which is a great thing. Like, you know, the market has, has grown. So you don't have to, like, if I ever decided, Hey, you know what? I'm not wearing this watch anymore. I want someone else to enjoy it. And I want to put my money yeah. into another watch. I can find another buyer for this at a reasonable price. So it makes collecting so much more accessible to everybody when everything's liquid. Whereas like exactly. watches like this used to be so illiquid that like it would just, you would buy it and then it'd be worthless. Um, yeah. I think and, that's you know, like, I think it's a great benefit. And I think that's like the, the power of social media, obviously having, uh, you know, with all the YouTube uh, and my Twitter channel, like my you. Instagram, like being able to, yeah, being able to like engage with, with my audience, like, and I just love being able to, it look, it's, it's beautiful, man. It's beautiful. Like these micro brands don't really have to put so much into it, right? To just even have a small following. And like, you know, I got really into this one micro brand from New Jersey. It's called Brew. And so this Brew. is the Brew yeah. Metric. Yeah, and I, I I spent I waited like almost seven months for this watch to arrive, but it finally arrived. This only costs like under four hundred US dollars, I think three hundred something. But it's such a fun, you know, micro brand and it's a mm -hmm. mecha quartz movement, but they he's doing cool stuff, Jonathan Ferrer and like I just love the idea that you can have a small company and you know, multiple price points engage in your you know, your watch collecting and just enjoy it at every level and not have to and have an audience for it and just have a social media following for it and I like message these guys like I go to their YouTube videos and I message them and they're just like who's this random tech, tech channel like you know messaging me like who is this guy because <laughs> they don't know that I'm just like so into it you know <laughs> that's amazing well you know it shows like I think the future of watch collecting in general is kind of bright because think about that right so before say like the rise of YouTube and and I think YouTube came around 2007 at the same time that the um, that the iPhone kind of came about, and but you know really took hold probably like 2015 or so. Same thing with yeah. with Instagram, but like these social media platforms, which YouTube essentially is a social media platform as well, um, you know, has allowed has allowed to kind of connect the world in such an amazing uh, way that like imagine think about a guy like you who's in Hong Kong, right, and you're buying a, a watch from a brand that makes very few watches based out of New Jersey, right, like yeah. and you're. It, it, like they're not they're not advertising to you like you found out about them uh through other watch collectors on instagram and it's just this viral social media marketing has is really i think it's been a great benefit i mean it definitely has lended itself for these hype watches so if you're one of those grumpy guys who hates that people are buying watches for the wrong reason or whatever yeah. listen you know you're it's you're gonna hate the social media aspect of it and, and in general i don't really like social media for communicating with people but for Finding out about new ideas and new things, I think Instagram and and YouTube specifically. Like I'm a huge, I'm constantly. I mean, literally, I have a TV behind my computer right now, and I'm watching Tim, and that's that's how I get most of my watch content. Is I just stare at YouTube. I'm also a Brazilian Jiu Jitsu addict, and I watch. There's plenty of of uh, YouTube 
content for that and I love to cook and I learn I you know there's a guy called Sam the cooking guy who I'm obsessed with who actually just bought a bought some panerais so I, I noticed that and now he like he enjoyed he he combined my love of cooking right with with watches and it's just it's amazing you connect with these people and I think that you know a guy like you who comes from that kind of YouTube world understands that and I think that you know there's like five years ago you this this would have never happened right like you're you yeah. Would have never started your YouTube channel, and you would have never been connected with the Watchbox, and we would have never seen a value in a guy like you either. If this had, if there wasn't, you know, this type of platform, right? And I think it's only going to grow. It's only going to get better. Exactly. Amazing. Man, it's cool. So um, we're running up up on about an hour. I mean, this has been an awesome conversation that I've had with you, and I feel like you and I could probably go for another two hours or so. But we like to keep these right around an hour, not so as not to bore yeah. people too much. Um, and I will say for all of our listeners, listen, if you're still listening an hour deep into this, we love you and you're a champion. Um, but in terms of parting, <laughs> in terms of parting words, you know, uh, Frankie, you know, what do you want to tell the the few listeners that might be listening still? And, uh, and you know, what, do you have any messages for them? Yeah, no, I appreciate the chat. It's really been amazing. And, uh, you know, if anyone here obviously is, is listening in Hong Kong, you know, I definitely, uh, invite you to come and. Uh, stop by our Watchbox Hong Kong boutique because we really have. I think a lot of people watch Tim's videos, you know, and they don't realize they come into our boutique and they're like, "I didn't know you you were in Hong Kong," and and it, it's crazy because like they they think uh, maybe it's just a U.S. thing, but we definitely are in Hong Kong. So definitely stop by and uh, pay a visit. Come check out some amazing timepieces. And then from the other end, of course, if you happen to like tech as well, you know, I can also be found on my social media channels. Frankie Tech is my big tech channel, but I also have a small watch channel, Frankie Watch. Just type it there in YouTube and you'll find them. And uh, yeah, you definitely also look me up on uh, on Instagram at Frankie Tech. And yeah, it, it, it's been awesome. Really enjoyed this chat, Joshua. Sweet man, awesome. Yeah, that's right. We have so Hong Kong was our was our first and kind of our flagship flagship international office. We also have Singapore, we have Dubai, we have Switzerland. I think we have two offices in Switzerland yeah. now. We're opening in Riyadh. We're opening in Shanghai. So uh, in terms of kind of global takeover, that's us. You know, we're trying to take it over the the global watch world. We're doing, I think, a good job, and we're bringing on awesome guys like you. Hey, one last thing, I just remembered. So yeah. um, guys, it, as kind of an Easter egg. For any of those listening uh, this deep into it, um, I am hosting a private webinar with my buddy Tim Masso on the 27th of July at 7 p.m. Eastern, and um, it's by it's invitation only. The spots are limited. Um, I've I've reached out to basically my entire client list, my my guys who you know are fans of Tim. But um, if you're looking for a spot on that and you think you'd enjoy that. Um, reach out to me directly. You can find me on Instagram at Mr. Thanos, or you can send me an email, jthanos at thewatchbox.com. And if you're a fan of the podcast, we are extending invites to uh, fans of the podcast. So send me a send me an email, ask me for an invite. I'll go ahead and send you that RSVP uh, with the link. And again, that will be it'll be hosted on July 27th at 7 p.m. So uh, hopefully we'll get this podcast up. Bef- uh, this week and if anybody's listening you can send me a, uh, a request and I'll send you an, an invite for that and Frankie you're welcome too yeah, if you want to get awesome. up early your time <laughs> I mean no that sounds amazing I I, I honestly I, I feel like I need to get to know Tim because I just I've been a huge yeah. fan of his work and you know he's obviously he's been doing YouTube for 
longer than me. So I mean, that's 2014. Just, yeah. Yeah. I was actually on his first like talking show episode. Him and I sat next to each other. You can scroll back on our on our channel to find that. I don't recommend doing it. It was awkward. I didn't know what to do with my hands, and I didn't really talk much. And just Tim stared at the camera and talked for 30 minutes, and I think I said two or three words. It was kind of a weird episode, but. It was kind of how, how everything kind of got started now. But um, awesome, dude. Yeah. Well, listen, uh, how, how do people contact you besides – so you said Instagram at Frankie Tech. Uh, what's your email address if they want to reach out to you about a watch? Yeah, you can reach out to me um, for Watchbox you're talking about. Yeah, it's uh, just yes, my sir, name. Yeah. It's Francisco.Herrera at thewatchbox.com. And, uh, yeah, you should find my details actually uh, through uh, Instagram and at Frankie Watch as well. I have my details at Frankie underscore watch. You'll find my contact details uh, for any inquiries for watches as well. Sweet. Awesome, man. Well, I appreciate you taking the time. I know it's late your time, so I'll let you go. Uh, guys, again, thank you so much for listening. Reach out to me about the uh, the webinar on July, on July 27th. And otherwise, we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.